Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Monday, April the 12th. This is episode 2855 of the Survival Podcast. We have a listener feedback show. A lot of you guys really love this. But then there's a segment of you that when I tell you the next part of today's title, if you didn't see it in the feed... You're going to be like, ah, don't, please, please trust me, right? This is a crypto edition. Now, I want to tell you something about listener feedback and how it works. I tend to answer the questions, did I get the most often in type? So if I get like one question about a thing out of a whole year, it may make it in the show because it's interesting and different, but there'll be lots of those, and I can only take so many of those. The reason you hear so much lately about cryptocurrency on the Survival Podcast is first and foremost, I believe this is earth-changing, world-changing. This is a dynamic I don't think you should ignore. You can if you want to, but I don't think you should. Number two, it's, it's by far, it is absolutely by far the thing I get the most questions about right now. It's the one I get the most questions about directly. Hey, Jack, can you tell me? It's the one I get the most questions about on social media. It is the one that I get the most questions about in relation to Miyagi Mornings videos. I mean, just in, it's the one I'm getting the most questions about from family and friends, etc. now. And that's totally different than it's ever been. Totally different than it's ever been. And I think that's because we're reaching kind of a, a next phase of things here. And so I want to make sure that people understand these basic questions. There's some basic stuff we're going to talk about today. There's some advanced stuff we're going to talk about today. We're not going to, we're not going to talk about mining Right, We're not going to go into the minutia. This will be a good show, if, especially for those of you who have been holdouts, uh, saying, I don't, want to, I don't want to touch this thing. I want, I want to look away. I want to look away. Um, an analogy Michael Saylor used is if you're on a boat, right, and the boat's sinking and somebody throws you a life preserver, you're not going to say, well, what, what's it made out of? How do I know it's going to keep floating? Right, you're going to grab onto it. And I think in some ways, right now with what's happening to the economic system as a whole, cryptocurrency is a life, a life preserver, and specifically Bitcoin. Uh, and I know a lot of people that have been in the crypto space for a long time are like, eh, Bitcoin, that's old news, it was the first one. It is the trillion-dollar asset, guys. There's Bitcoin, and then all the rest of all the cryptocurrency together adds up to a market cap almost about the same as Bitcoin. That's... That's something we, we don't ignore, and I think that this will be a good show for anyone today, and I think it'll help with an understanding of what actually is going on, how it happened, why it's happening, what's going to happen next, why I think you probably do want to be a part of this, and as always, I reserve the right to be wrong. Before we jump into that, though, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is JM Bullion. Look, guys, um, I, I, I have heard probably the number one objection to cryptocurrency. Well, why not silver? Well, why not gold? Well, why not silver? Well, why not gold? And, and my response to that is, why not both? Why not both? Now, I'm going to show you today, when I answer one question in spe specifically, why I think Bitcoin makes more sense than gold as a reserve for the average person. I don't think that means that we should ignore precious metals and the value they have held for millennia, though. 
And I think it makes a lot of sense to stack some silver and maybe some gold somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% of your net wealth. Same thing I've been saying forever. Jam is a great place because when you buy an American Silver Eagle, it's the same. That's part of what makes buying silver and gold attractive. It's all the same. But what that means is why would you pay one company more than another company for the same silver? The answer is you shouldn't. There's no good answer to that. There really isn't. Well, Jam Bullion has better pricing than like Lear Capital, Monix, and Atmex. They also support the Member Support Brigade, and they give you uh, a discount on your on your purchases. All orders ship for free, and they've been supporting this show now for a decade. So if you're going to pick up some silver and gold, please check them out. And if you're an MSB member, get your discount. Next up today, the other precious metal, copper jacketed lead. Our partner, BulkAmmo.com, has been supporting this show for eight years now. They just signed up for another year, paid in full. Uh, they love you guys, and they love supporting the show. They also do a discount for MSB members. You find all the common calibers in there in bulk. Great pricing, lightning-fast shipping. Check them out today at website name. Super easy to remember, BulkAmmo.com. All right, with that, I want to lead off today with an announcement, actually with a, with a quote. I want to start with a quote, because we're talking about Bitcoin today, and I, I, I specifically picked this quote for the resistance. The resistance not the resistance using Bitcoin, that's the real resistance, the resistance to cryptocurrency. Wayne Dyer said, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Now, that's not actually true, but it's completely profoundly true. And what I mean is that the thing that you perceive is a certain way. And your perception of it may not match what it is. And to a degree, we all live in our own world. This is uh, one of the concepts that I was first exposed to in the work of Richard Bach uh, in his book Illusions, where he talks about his, his the Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah, where uh, the enlightened Donald Shmoda tells uh, Richard, his self-named character, that basically we all live in our own world. And that's a good thing in a lot of ways. But in the end, we also have a collective world. And I know collectivism has a terrible, terrible concept today because of collectivism, communism, etc. Yeah, I agree. But there's still a collective world. In other words, there's still a place where humans interact with each other. We're all the edges of all our worlds that we have a little bubble around as far perception. They all come together. And then, you know, we buy something from somebody or we work somebody for somebody or we hire somebody or we exchange goods and services with somebody or we communicate with somebody. And that's where those two worlds, it's like for a time those bubbles interlock and, and then you know, we go back into our own little world. But there's a space, like a giant Venn diagram where there, there is this collective concept of what's going on. And in that world, a thing like cryptocurrency does what it does. It works or it fails. It, accru it accrues value or it falls in value. And no matter what you think about it, in that space is what it really is. And it so often is the case that our little worlds are disconnected from that collective world. And there's, again, there's, there's times to do it. Like, instead of watching the news and hearing the same bullshit over and over again that you can't do anything about. But there's times to not ignore it. And that's what Dyer is really talking about here. When we change the way we look at things, we begin to see them more as they really are for everybody than our personal prejudice and bias for or against them ourselves. And that's what I ask you to do as we look at things today. Change the way you look at things so that the things themselves may change, for you anyway. All right. 
So anyway, real quick announcement before we dig into these questions. Dr. Earth, you guys have heard me talk about Dr. Earth forever, like four years at least since I put together my core fertility program. And uh, they have a pro problem called Premium Gold. It's a 444 perfectly balanced NPK fertilizer, but it's also full of nutrients, uh, uh, micronutrients, macronutrients, but it's also full of beneficial and colony-forming bacteria and fungi. And that is a huge, huge component of true soil fertility and soil health. So it's really like three products in one. It's a fertility, direct fertility product. It's a colony-forming bacterial product and a colony-forming colony fungal product. But some of the best bacteria and fungi you can get for your soil. And there's tons of options from Dr. Earth. They even have potting soils and stuff like that. And they sell a lot of stuff online. Well... I've worked on this for a while, and I have gotten a commitment today uh, from Dr. Earth. They are joining the MSB. I already have a code for you guys and 10% off all orders from Dr. Earth. That's huge. This is one of the bigger brands we've ever been able to work with. The only reason it's not published in the MSB yet and the blog post announcing it is not out yet is they wanted me to do their write-up for them instead of doing it for themselves, And I send it back to them until they say, yeah, okay, stamp of approval, I'm not publishing it. Because if they're like, well, we want, sometimes with bigger brands, you know, like, oh, well, we want a comma there. And it actually is a big deal. I don't think it will be there, but, you know, you let, you let the partner make their own decision about how they're represented. So uh, we will have them at the latest by tomorrow. I expect to hear back from Kathy over there today with a rubber stamp of, yeah, go ahead with that, and uh, we'll get it in there for you. If you're an MSB member and you want to place your order, right now, and you don't want to wait, and I haven't put it out yet, then email me with your username, and I will send you the discount code backdoor until we get final approval. All right. Uh, with that, I do want to start uh, digging into this, um, and I'm going to go kind of quick with it. I got a little bit of a late start today from some things that are going on. I got friends coming over for dinner, so I want to blow through it. So I, every one of these, there's a, a user with a fairly long explained question uh, attached to it, but I'm going to just read the bullet points and give you the straight you know, answer unless I feel that more is needed. So one person asked me, what impact does lost crypto have on the prices, and, the prices of crypto and its usage and its validity? And then what effect will FedCoin have on banks? And so it was really two questions. Let's start out with the lost crypto thing. So his concern is basically, well, when crypto's lost, it's gone. Can, you, can, there, can enough of it ever be lost that you break it? Well, there's 21 million units of Bitcoin. That's the, that's the lifetime cap ever. You can't ever have 21 million in one. Um, 98% of that will be mined by, I think, 2030 or 2032 or something like that. And there'll be a very tiny amount to mine going forward. It is a deflationary currency. It's designed that way. There is probably 3 million-ish Bitcoin. That's the best guess that was lost. Now, he brings up things like it was lost because of things like Mt. Gox. Okay, So when Mt. Gox crashed and, went and burned, it was hacked. If somebody hacks it, it's not gone. That's all been probably re-infiltrated into the ecosystems throughout the world anyway, right? People don't hack Bitcoin to destroy it. They hack, well, they don't, nobody's hacked Bitcoin. People don't try to hack into wallets and exchanges so that they can take the coins and destroy them or hide them. They, they hack into them so they can 
steal them and spend them, right? So that's not lost. But it does happen, and, and probably the crypto with the most currency lost, and by proxy, some of the forks are in the same position. I, I don't know how Bitcoin Cash isn't in the exact same position, right? So if you do a direct fork where uh, when, when Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash forked, if you were holding two Bitcoin, you got two Bitcoin Cash. Well, that happened whether you had possession of it or not. So Bitcoin Cash, to me, should have the same supply issues, right? So if, if there's two million, three million, four million Bitcoin left, does it still work? Of course it still works. Works fine. Right now, tons of people don't want to spend it. This is what drives the price up. This is a case that we've been making in the Bitcoin community for a long time. It's not 21 million. There's 18 million some odd change in circulation right now, supposedly, but at least several million of those are lost forever. Bitcoin can be lost simply because a tiny, 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 super tiny piece ends up on a wallet that's really just not capable of moving it anymore. It's too small to move, can't afford to move it. Um, but generally what happened in the beginning, and this happened a lot, people went into mining because they were geeks and they thought it was a geeky thing to do and it seemed fun, like a little habit, a little hobby or something. And they mined, you know, it was easy in the very beginning. You could mine them with a laptop. And we've all thrown away old laptops and then went, hey, what about that stuff that was on there, like some pictures of my cat? Well, in this case, maybe it was, you know, Couple million dollars worth of Bitcoin gone. So that happened. Another thing that happened is people were very evangelistic and they tried to share Bitcoin. And back when Bitcoin was, you know, five, ten bucks, people would get three or four Bitcoin and give it to somebody who would then promptly not really give a shit and lose the stuff. So this is a good thing for value. And no, I mean, I guess if you lost every Bitcoin except one, <laughs> I guess there's maybe a breaking point, but you don't see Bitcoin get lost much anymore. It just doesn't happen because now it's worth $57,000 of Bitcoin or $60,000, whatever, whatever it's, it, it is at the time that I'm speaking because it's been uh, bouncing around in a sideways pattern for a couple weeks. Uh, according to my app, $59,838. People are not going to be careless with them any longer, though it's, I'm fine if they do. The other thing that's driven up price due to availability with Bitcoin is there are, there are, you know, we can look at the blockchain, we can see an address. We don't know the address belongs to Frank, but we know the address has X amount of Bitcoin in it. And people have done some very thorough analysis of this, and there's, there's addresses where there's large quantities of Bitcoin that haven't moved for five years, ten years, etc. And so that Bitcoin, even though it exists, and even though somebody probably does have it, it, for all intents and purposes, is off the market. On top of this, we now have entities, corporations, institutions, that are going directly to some of the large mining uh, companies and saying, if you want to sell any Bitcoin, we'll buy it all. They have contracts that if they sell any to sell first to those people at market. Whatever market is that day, that's what they get. So they have guaranteed fast, rapid, liquid capital. But on the other side of it, now the miners are starting to realize selling Bitcoin is stupid. So the mining companies, the big mining companies, are keeping the Bitcoin and not selling it. All this does is take the Bitcoin that actually is in circulation and drive the price up because there's more competition for less and less currency. It's the exact opposite of what your government did. That's why it works. <laughs> now, FedCoin. I really don't get the question here other than maybe Bitcoin plays into this or crypto plays into this. 
But it was basically like once we have FedCoin and they regulate the in and out, like they regulate what happens when you take Bitcoin into dollars and dollars back into Bitcoin. That's the place, and we'll talk about that in a bit because we have some questions on that. Um, what, what use will there be for banks? Why would anybody hold dollars? Well, people are going to hold dollars. And unless we get like a Weimar Republic meltdown, which, which I don't think we will. I think we'll, we, I think we're right up against it, but I think that this entire paradigm shift is going to make governments, don't take this the wrong way. Don't, don't, don't think I'm patting their back too hard. Be more responsible. Right? The, the governments and the central banks are going to have to be more responsible. I didn't say be responsible. Be less irresponsible with money printing. And so we need a medium of exchange. And, and, and the big argument against Bitcoin is it's not a good medium of exchange because I can't buy a coffee and a scone with it. I'll talk about later how that's not exactly true, but you shouldn't be buying a coffee and a scone with Bitcoin anymore. Okay? You don't do that with gold either, do you? Right? So there are people that think they'll basically be, if you look at the gold standard and the true gold standard, if we go back, I'm not talking the FDR remnant of it, but the original gold standard, we basically had a very simple binary currency system. We had silver and gold. And gold was generally seen as that store of value. And silver is the medium of exchange. So somebody might have spent some gold to buy you know, something really expensive, like a house or something like that. But in general, people held gold, and they, took, they did commerce in silver. So we had the store of value and medium of exchange. When we look at cryptocurrency, if we accept, which we should by now, that Bitcoin is digital gold, and I know some people get tweaked by that. We'll deal with that with a question later on toward the end. Um, but if we accept that fact, then we need a silver. That was the original concept of Litecoin. Litecoin was cheaper, faster, uh, less expensive to use, so it can be the silver to Bitcoin's gold. And it, it pretty much does that. At this point, though, you have to look at the crypto space and say, so do a thousand other cryptocurrencies. When somebody says, you know, Bitcoin's slow or it has limited block transactions, it's expensive, so Bitcoin cash is better money. My response is, so what? So is Litecoin. So is, frankly, so is Dogecoin. Dogecoin is cheaper, faster, easier to use in some ways than Bitcoin, right? Um, Algorand, Cardano, I mean, like, pff, I can keep going. There are almost every cryptocurrency made after Bitcoin is a better medium of exchange if you use it in a purist format. So then you have to ask yourself, do you think people are going to go into a purist format? Or do you think that the world is going to look at this amazing thing that is Bitcoin, that is measured financially, the most successful things humans have ever done? Nothing ever has been done that is as successful economically as Bitcoin in the time it took for Bitcoin to do what it did. Bitcoin became a trillion-dollar network in 11 years. It took Amazon 25, took Microsoft 35, it took Apple 40. So, like, you take your biggest brands that there are, and you measure them against the success of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was built by miners, that's what really makes the network, and by holders and users of the technology. And all these miners using all these boxes, the, the really important thing to understand is the only purpose of that box, that ASIC too is to secure the network. All that money, all that cost, all that energy is securing the most secure network on the planet. That's why it has value. So if that is gold, then what becomes the silver? 
And while I don't like this, I'm not here to tell you what I want. I'm here to tell you what I think is going to happen. I think the dollar or the euro or whatever in the native currency becomes the silver. People will still spend dollars and they will hold value in Bitcoin. That doesn't mean there's no room for any other alts. I disagree with Michael Siedler when he says every other alt will go to zero. I think that's insane. I don't think that makes any other any sense. But I think 90% of them will. Because we don't need them. They don't do anything. They don't do anything that we need. I've said from the very beginning since I started talking about this, you have to, when somebody says, here's this new currency, okay, give me its use case scenario. Pirate chain. When I first heard about it, oh, great, another crypto. It's private. Eh, okay, so is Monero. Okay, it's completely private, totally untraceable. The longer it gets used, the more it gets used, the more secure it becomes, and the more private it becomes. Runs on three blockchains. We can do back-end atomic swaps and convert currency and erase its past. Yeah, okay, I'm in. I'm in. Uh, ARC, we can basically allow any company, any entity, anywhere to immediately deploy a blockchain because blockchains are reusable for things beyond a cryptocurrency. There's tons of things we can do with that. So we took Lisk, we made it even more simple, we built this thing, you can earn a return on it. We could be the WordPress of cryptocurrency and blockchains at some point. Okay, okay, yeah, sure. Sure, maybe, and it could still lose, right? It could still lose. But most of them are gonna, are, are gonna go tits up sooner or later. They have to. They're gonna have to have a unique use case scenario. So some of the things that are like some DeFi tokens and things like that allow for some of the things we'll talk about later, sure. But in the end, do we, you know, if you just think back to what happened in 2017, 2018, it was a blood, and I said it was coming, right? I said here, it's coming. Get out of the way. This is gonna be a bloodletting. Everything's up for no apparent reason. There has to be a bloodletting, and there was. And there are tons of cryptos that technically still exist, but you can't get anybody to buy them. They don't do anything. They're they're bust, right? It will happen again, and and I think we'll get down to you know a couple hundred that make the cut, and then of those, a couple dozen that get used with any real regularity by individuals and institutions. Um. And then we'll end up with one king. We already know who he is. The king is Bitcoin. It, no, nobody's going to unseat it. Bitcoin is the Google of cryptocurrency. Um, if you go back to the dawning of the dot-com world, you could have bought all the Internet stocks. What you wanted to own was Google. And spreading it out against all those other stocks, at some point in time you might have had some gains that were higher than Google's. But in the end, Google was the only thing you really wanted to own. It's where your money really wanted to be. So, with that in mind, wh what role do banks have? Well, you still have a, a way and a medium to exchange dollars. They'll just use a crypto dollar. However, I think we might have to change our definition of bank. You know, Square in the Cash app is probably going to be your bank. Or PayPal is going to be your bank. Um, I see DeFi loans and other forms of cryptocurrency leverage loans where you don't ever go to a bank, but you might also go to a bank for something we're going to talk about later. I think there'll be banks. I think there'll be less of them, a lot less of them. Uh, next up, we have a question on why did the IRS call crypto a security or a commodity versus a currency? There's a couple reasons here. Number one, if you have a currency, let's say euros, and you have a small amount of it, 
and because you went to Europe and then you change it back into dollars, you just happen to luck out and you made a few hundred bucks. You don't pay any tax on that. They don't even want any. So it would have made it murky with their tax guidance. Where what the IRS says is, let's say you give me a Bitcoin today or give me $20 in Bitcoin today. I'm supposed to report that as $20 in income. And then when I spend that, if it's worth $30 when I spend it, I'm supposed to report not only the $20 already I paid tax on, now I'm going to pay taxes on the 10 that I gained. Likewise, if it went down to $10 and I spend it, then I can report it as loss. Well, if it's a currency versus a commodity or a security, does it follow the same rules as, as foreign exchanges? Is it only taxable if... It's, I'm actually actively trading, making lots of money with it. How do they know? Even if they catch you because they figured it out, if they haven't made that discrepancy, did you really, were you trading or did you just happen to, you know, spend some money and it worked out, right? So that was one reason. Another reason though is so they can go after people. If it's a currency, how can you say a company can't sell it? So let's say I created, uh, Jackistan. Right, Jackistan. I keep joking. I'm gonna have the island of Jackistan someday, but I create Jackistan the company, and we have the Jackistan coin, right? And right now, the way that would work is I have to really work really hard to get that currency being used by people, and make a case, and probably spend a lot of money to get that currency onto an exchange, and then I can push pretty hard with marketing my branded currency, but you can't buy it from me. You have to go buy it from the exchange. So there's this third party in between us. I'm not selling directly to you. And that lets the market fairly set the price. I can't just magically say, hey, a Jackistan token is worth uh, 0.1 Bitcoin. It doesn't work that way. You see see how that works? And that, that keeps things... From a consumer standpoint, a little bit more protective. I don't want protection from the by the government, but I can acknowledge that it's there. If you call it a currency, if they say it's if, if they said it is what it actually is, which is digital money, well then I should be able to sell all the money I want. Then the SEC doesn't get to come in and start telling you what you can and can't do. So it was basically the way they could nail you every which way from Sunday in their tax guidance and their regulation. That's why they did it. Because we would be in a much better position for libertarians, anarchists, freedom-loving individuals if it was considered a currency by government uh, versus a commodity. It will also have made making it illegal ever in any way, shape, or form almost impossible because it's just money. Right? So, um, However, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to say if you privately sell it, then you know maybe you're doing money laundering, even if you're not selling it for cash, you know, for money. If you're doing, if, if I'm giving you Bitcoin and you're giving me R, and I set that up, and I'm not a licensed exchange, all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm committing fraud or I'm committing money laundering. So they, they, right now, the SEC, who is who is suing Ripple, claiming they're a security and they were illegally marketing a security, is having to explain some things to a judge versus their language internally. Because Ripple's lawyers are good, 
and they managed to get the judge to allow discovery of internal documents within the SEC, and the SEC was constantly referring to it as a digital currency in their internal communications and then referring to it as a security on the outside. So I don't know if that, that gambit will work for Ripple, but it does pose an interesting question. How are you claiming this is a security when you were calling it a, a currency when talking to yourselves about it? So that's why they did that. Um, another little quick announcement right here in the middle. Uh, our cryptocurrency group on MeWe is, I believe, the best cryptocurrency group you will find. Occasionally a new member will get in and throw some trolling shit in there, and we will delete it as soon as we see it. So don't think because you see something on there, it's guaranteed safe. Right. Ask if you if you get in the group for a while, you'll learn who the who the people who are veterans and been around for a while in this. If you're confused about something, use the chat function. Ask about it, and that'll probably bring it to one of our you know one of the administrators' attention if it's a scam, and we'll know to get rid of it. We try to keep a good uh, eye on it. But the announcement is we just passed two thousand members. Two thousand members in a MeWe group is a sizable MeWe group. Uh, and on cryptocurrency, I think we are not only the best cryptocurrency online, we are probably the most active and the largest real crypto group on MeWe. There's some ones that have been there forever, so they maybe have a few more raw members, but they're not real groups of real people that really help each other. Um, next, someone emailed me and said, I watched some of the videos you've posted on Michael Saylor. They're all great. But Michael says you, if you hold your Bitcoin long enough, you'll be able to borrow against your Bitcoin forever in retirement and never pay tax, how the F does that work? And he did not put F. He spelled out the whole word. And I'm not saying it's not possible, but it doesn't sound effing realistic to me. It actually is maybe. And it's, it's going to sound like a game when I explain it, but remember, everything the rich do with money is a game. So let's throw some numbers at this and some pretty conservative ones at that. It is conceivable that by, let's say, the year 2030, Bitcoin will be worth a million bucks. It's conceivable. I know some people are like, ah, I'm turning them off. I can't take it anymore. No, I'm sorry. If I would have told you that it's very conceivable that by 2021, uh, Bitcoin will be over $60,000. Um, and I said that in 2019 during the dark days and the, the Bitcoin cash hash wars. Yeah, you would have said the same thing, right? Like, no way, never. Cool uh, mania. Um, but it's conceivable it's worth a million dollars. More half a million dollars. Let's say no matter what it's worth, year 2030 comes and you want to retire. You have about $4 million worth of Bitcoin. So it would be four to eight Bitcoin, depending on if Bitcoin was a half a million or a million dollars of Bitcoin, or anywhere in between. But you have $4 million. And... Let's say that you decided you want to live on $200,000 a year. That's 5% of your Bitcoin, meaning if it stayed where it was, you would be able to theoretically draw out of it till you got to zero over 20 years. But every time you drew out of it, it'd be $200,000 worth of income or close to it. You know, even if you buy in now, the majority of it's profit. You're going to take, hit, take a big old capital gains hit on it. Plus, you're going to run out at some point if you keep taking out you know, 5%. Now, it could keep going up in value where you need to take out less and less. right? But there's no elasticity in this because if you decide all of a sudden you need $250,000 a year to live on, you, you still have to keep pace with that. Right? So it's very conceivable we could have loans in the neighborhood of 2% if they are collateralized by Bitcoin by 2030. 
Right now it's like 11% or something like that. It's, 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 it's embryonic. It's in its infancy, these, these loans. Because we can do them, you know, Ethereum doesn't have a monopoly on smart contracts. And basically you could say, out of my 4 million Bitcoin, I'm not spending it. But I'm, I'm, I'm basically staking my own coin to borrow the money. And I'm going to borrow $200,000 in my first year in retirement. So I stake this, and they know like this, this is as collateralized as a loan gets. You might even have to stake a little bit more. But remember, you still own it. You haven't spent it. You haven't traded it. There is no income. And you get your $200,000 in you know, Fed coin or whatever it is. And you use it through that year. You service the debt over you know, 12 months, which is a fairly small amount to service because you take maybe five-year money with no penalty for payoff, by the way. And then at the end of that cycle, you owe about $200,000. Now, if Bitcoin has still appreciating at like a very modest number, and this will average out over the years, even if there's a down year, right, over 10, 20, 30 years of retirement, this average, let's say 10%. And so the $4 million you have is now worth $4.4 million. And only $200,000 of it is tendered against a loan. Well, you just borrow twice now. And then you take the first loan and use it, the, the second loan and use it to pay off the first loan and live off the difference. And even with 5 and 10% there, you can theoretically do that almost forever. If you can get down to 2%, Bitcoin can maintain somewhere in the 15, 20% range of appreciation over time averaged out, which totally makes sense that it would. You could literally go on forever with a much larger income and never run out of money. And you die with, you know, $30 million in Bitcoin and $20 million of debt against it. Big whoop. So your heirs get $10 million in Bitcoin that they pay no taxes on because it's inheritance. That's what he's saying. Now, I, I'm, I'm trying to get Michael on the show, and I'm sure I kind of butchered the exact nuances of doing that. That's the basics. I would I would like to get him on because of course he's talking about people that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He you know he has buddies who are all billionaires and own jets, right? So I would like it broken down into something that's realistic for the average person. A million bucks, two million bucks, even if it's not enough to completely fund your retirement. Because uh, you didn't get in early enough, you didn't have enough money put away, but you have your regular retirement, you have your Bitcoin portion, it should scale. You know, if you have $500,000 worth of Bitcoin when you retire, you should be able to do the same thing just with smaller numbers. And I, I think that the infrastructure to do this already exists. It just needs to mature to where the numbers work. That's what Michael's saying there. Will that happen? I don't know. But if it does, I'm going to do it. Why would I ever sell my Bitcoin? Why would I ever pay taxes on it? We don't pay taxes on loans. I'm just saying, all right? Uh, then uh, this is just a quick little interesting thing here. If, if you doubt that this is what it is, I have a listener that works. He didn't give their name because he probably doesn't want to lose his job. He works for a publicly traded coal mining company. You know what they just did? They just put a shitload of money into mining Bitcoin. Think about this. A coal mining company has taken its profits from mining coal and invested in Bitcoin mining equipment and is mining Bitcoin. 
That should say a lot. Uh, next, how will government regulate the on and off ramps into fiat, and what role do privacy coins play in that? They're just going to make it to whenever you go into fiat, and it's going to be less going into crypto. Right? That's going to require KYC, which it already does. There, I mean, there is some loopholes here and there. You can go buy from a friend. You can go to localbitcoins.com and see if that works for you. But in general, if you want to, and especially think about this, if you want to buy you know, thousands of dollars, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, in case some cases billions of dollars of Bitcoin, you, you, you have to be a known quantity. So there's already regulation in. Regulation out will come in the form is that anybody that's licensed or approved to let you sell your Bitcoin for FedCoin, right, and, and then take it out into the native fiat system of exchange, there'll be uh, additional regulations around that. I, and I think that's all they really can do, and I don't doubt that they will, because I think it's going to be almost impossible for them to regulate the exchange of cryptocurrency between individuals or entities that remains purely in crypto. Because how? Because if you could, you'd do it already. Now, I think there's cryptos being built that are being designed to sell the government on the concept, hey, look what we can do. Um Was it Cardano? Cardano doesn't have the feature yet, but it's built into the code. I found it in their white paper. I'm like, you bastards. Um, they have a feature built into their blockchain code that would allow them to include the identity of the sender and receiver in the transaction. Um, Hard-coded forever. I'm not talking about a no like some, some wallets have a note, you know, where you can say, this, Bill, this is Tom... You know, whatever. No, this is like hardcore coded into the, and then it's designed also to work with custodial wallets that already have KYC. So you would then be attached to that transaction forever. And so they, they will do things like that as well, but you, you, you always have the ability for people to take possession and do business privately. We always have the ability for things like, Decentralized exchanges to exist. They can exist as applications, not even websites. Some of them already do. So they're gonna that they're gonna have to focus on what they can focus on. And I think that at some point, honestly, what the government is gonna do is gonna be very much like what they did with offshore banking uh, not so long ago. They will say, declare all the Bitcoin that you have, all the cryptocurrency you have, and pay a one-time fee based on its value. And the past is irrelevant and only the future matters. Something like that. Um, the reason I think they'll do that is because when they did it with, with offshore banking and all the rich guys hiding their money in the Bahamas and every place else, um, it was immensely popular. And it bought billions upon billions upon billions of dollars back to the U.S. Some in, in very well-known Caches that were totally legit, like Apple's billions in China. Because Apple didn't really want their billions in China. China was just treating their money better than we were. So we decided, we'll treat your money better and we'll let you come home. But a lot of it was also money like, you know, Mr. Rich Dude that lives down the road from you in the rich neighborhood that had, you know, a couple hundred million stashed away offshore somewhere said, oh, yeah, I'd love to bring it back. I just don't want it. Well, how much does it cost? Yeah, I'll do it. It was, it was a voluntary kind of an amnesty. And it worked incredibly well. And I think that governments seldom get things right, even in their own best interest. 
So when they do, they tend to remember that, and they tend to repeat those patterns and try to use them again. So I think that may exactly hap that may eventually happen. And you, I know what you're going to ask me. Well, if they did it, would you do it? Well, it depends. I don't know. And what royal what role do privacy coins play in this? And how can privacy coins kind of give a fresh start to you know Bitcoin? Um, was the other side of that question. So let's say that I have a Bitcoin. Just one Bitcoin. And so I, I, I put it on a decentralized exchange with no customer KYC at all. And so I stick it on there. And then I say, I'm going to sell all my Bitcoin into a privacy coin like R. So I do that. And then I trade it back into Bitcoin. At that point, that Bitcoin is not directly associated with me in any way. It does have an address, and you could look at the address on the Block Explorer and kind of tell it probably came from this exchange over here. Maybe you could figure that out. Um, but then I move it off that to another address. You could then see it. There it is. It went from this address to that address. And even I broke it up to multiple addresses, It would you, there it all went. Right? We can track it all down. We can piece it all back together. But its genesis is right there as though it was just purchased. Brand new, out of thin air. It went away. It, it disintegrated. You can't make the connection between it going in on one side and coming out on the other side. And that's it. There's nothing more magical about it than that. Because everything's shielded and hidden. Because of all the, uh, the, all the, effectively the block explorer in Pirate Chain is a bunch of zeros. Right? Unless you had the viewing key, which only the person doing the transaction would have then you, you, you can't tell where it came from. So effectively, it becomes a way to give any crypto a kind of a fresh start. I don't know how often it'll be used that way, but it can be. What's more interesting is that back-end technologies linked to privacy coins like Monero or like Pirate Chain, etc., can enable individual-to-individual transactions to occur in currencies other than those currencies and still be completely private. So let's say that I have Bitcoin, and for some reason I want to... Sp I have Bitcoin Cash, because I'm more likely to spend Bitcoin Cash than Bitcoin. So I have Bitcoin Cash. You say, I don't want Bitcoin Cash. I want Bitcoin. I'm like, I don't want to sell my Bitcoin. Well, the the, the BPAA, I think it's BPSAA, whatever it is that, that Pirate Chain's part of and Monero's part of, are developing this atomic swap backend technology where I would be able to say, okay, fine, I'm going to send you $1,000 worth of Bitcoin Cash, I'm buying your boat, right? Whatever. Doesn't matter. And you get Bitcoin. And both sides of the transaction are effectively invisible. There's a back-end transaction that was a swap into and back out of Pirate Chain. Or you want dollars, but Tether's dollars, right? These stable coins now have a lot of lobbyist money behind them. They're not going away either. So Tether, USDC, et cetera, right? True USD, all of it. And so if you'll, if you'll take Tether, then I'll be able to pay in, I don't know, Zcash or Litecoin or Bitcoin Cash or whatever. And there'll be a back-end swap. It'll pass through this. Think of it. Think of Pirate Chain now acting like a VPN. And then poof. Dollars come out on your side. Tether dollars come out on your side. Maybe even at some point actual dollars. I don't know. Um, that will make regulation of the on-ramps and off-ramps far more difficult. So 
I have my eye on this. I'm very happy with my decision to invest in Pirate Chain when it was eight freaking cents. Check the price now. Um, but I am worried about the regulation of privacy coins long term. Um, however, I do see it almost as an impossible thing to stop. Now, the type of technology I just gave you may become a little bit more difficult to implement, but I don't know how you're ever going to make the exchange of a, of a valued asset between individuals who want to exchange it go away once you've digitized it. They can't stop drugs, but they're going to stop a digital currency that can travel around the world at the speed of light. Good luck. Um, next, does the risk to Bitcoin and crypto in general rise or fall as the price continues to go up? This is one of these really long emails that I got. Um, and his assertion was, as the price of Bitcoin goes up, the loss of dominance of the fiat currency becomes more likely and therefore the, the the impending regulation becomes more likely and and like a complete attack trying to shut it down it was, comes at like $750,000. No, I don't think so. Cuz I don't think this is back to our quote, right? When when you change the way you look at things, the things that you look at change. What does it mean if Bitcoin's worth $750,000? What does it take to get us there? It takes a massive number of institutional investors with massive resources of lobbyists connected to them to get there. And we're heading there. I mean, I, I honestly, God, believe, yeah, we're heading hundreds of thousands of dollars of Bitcoin. When you look at it that way, though, you start to approach a parity with an eventual moving past gold's market cap. You end up at a point where, like, every rich person in the world either owns some Bitcoin or wants to. You end up at a point where some of the people that hold Bitcoin now become some of the most powerful people in the world. I mean, they're, they're, some of these people who all they did was invest in a lot of Bitcoin will someday be on par with economic influence that is as high as Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey. You know, um, Jeff Bezos, that's, that's like where we're headed. And so when somebody with that much money has that much vested interest in seeing to something stick around, you're not going to get a government that makes it go away. I actually think the more value you see pour into Bitcoin, the more pension funds, the more retirement funds, the more billionaires that are holding it, the more people that become billionaires because of it, the more difficult it becomes to get rid of it. As it becomes more and more part of our economy, the more it hurts to get rid of it. The more it hurts the government. The government is going to do what's in the government's best interest. Anyway, so I, I don't think that's that's even a thing. Um, next, I have always seen questions like this, and so I just kind of summarized several of them into basically what the point of this is. How should fear of the Internet going away affect holding crypto? And I put in the notes, hint, stop being afraid. Okay, the Internet's not going away. Let me say it one more freaking time. For those of you who think we're going back to the Stone Age, the Internet is not going the hell away. And even if it was down for a time, we will bring it back. What do I do in the interim? I don't know. I hope you're a good prepper. If the Internet is down, if the Internet is gone, you have bigger problems than what the value of your Bitcoin is. This is like saying, but, um, you know, I, uh, I, I want to get a boat, but the lake might dry up. 
That's what you're telling me. I, you know, well, what if, what if your aunt had balls? No matter what the woke community tells you, if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. Like this, this whole what if, and like people also say like, well, when they find out that you're one of the people that you're in the resistance, they're going to shut you off so you can't get on the internet. China can't keep its own people from using Google and Facebook. China. China can't keep its... It, Google is banned in China. Facebook is banned in China. And talk to somebody who's been to China. Everybody and their mother has VPN access. You, 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 you have to start realizing that this world is different today. This world has changed. Saying you're worried the Internet will go away is like saying you're worried electricity will go away. Well, we could have a, an EMP or whatever. Okay, sure. So are you going to make your decisions in your life 100% based on the fact that we could have an EMP attack? Because, again, you have bigger problems than your transistor radio won't play if we have an EMP attack. I, I, I don't think you can, you can live smartly and avoid things that make sense because you can come up and conceive of some black swan that could hit it. Now, if you say, I don't want to go all in on Bitcoin and put all my money into Bitcoin because something could go wrong, I'd say you're a very smart person. That's why we talk about diversity, and that's why we talk about smart allocations, right? But I think that like we are hitting a point, assuming that you have other assets, that you should be sweeping the majority of your reserve capital into Bitcoin, in the words of Michael Seller. And I think people who don't are going to wish they did. I mean, just bluntly. Um Next, what about Bitcoin's energy use problem? You know, I had never really heard it put this way. This was another one of Michael Saylor's discussions, but I don't think it was he who said it. It was, it was somebody who he was talking to. And the way they put it was, we don't have a shortage of energy in the world. But we can only move energy, electricity, pure power, right? We'll start generating, you know, gigawatts or whatever of energy. It can only go so far before it has to go into another um, like power substation and kind of be fooled around with and then sent back out. There's a distance limitation. Likewise, there's many sources of energy that are remote. You know, Think of a, a giant waterfall somewhere in an undeveloped world, and that water falling down that waterfall, it's spinning a wheel, can generate tons of energy, more than they'll ever need, but they don't have the the money to develop it, and there's not enough demand for electricity to export it and the tremendous cost of infrastructure to do it, so it remains unutilized. But if you can put up, throw a data center in there, you have all the power you need. Mine Bitcoin till the cows come home. And again, we're moving from mining Bitcoin to participating in securing the network as being the reality. And so there's this tremendous economic value to preserving and protecting the store of value that anybody that wants to can, can, uh, contribute to. And the cost of exporting and importing data is, is, is almost free. So while there's a limit to how far we can send, you know, power down a copper cable, you know, with, with things like Elon Musk's new satellite internet, like any part of the world is going to be able to have high speed internet connection. So you can literally have mining, which are really more security providing Uh, operations all over the world in places that were formerly undeveloped that actually could pay for the existence of civilization in that location. That, that's one way to look at this. Um, I don't see this as a problem. I don't see this as a problem. I think, first of all, 
when we talk about the energy use of Bitcoin, the raw numbers used, even just straight up, are, are, are probably exaggerated. Because they don't know who's doing what with this power. I think you're more talking about all the cryptocurrencies being called Bitcoin with these mining operations, right? So you have people that are mining Litecoin, and it's being attributed, the energy signature is being attributed to Bitcoin. Let's say it was true, though. You know, uses as much energy as Argentina or whatever. How much energy does it take to run the United States dollar? You know, people say the transaction fees are huge or whatever. How much money does it take to use the to run the U.S. dollar? First of all, our, our dollar is really, really dependent, at least right now, and has been for a hundred years on oil. It's the petrodollar. So, how much does it take to extract all that oil, and how much energy is expended by all that oil once it's extracted? Of course, we have to also defend that oil. And so the primary purpose of the United States military in controlling and regulating the world as the world's police force has been really around energy. And and the, the single largest user of energy in the world, infinity, is the United States military. So I think you have to take the United States military and say that's part of the cost of the dollar. How much money do you think, or how much energy do you think a data center for Visa uses? How about all the banks? Like, there's so much energy in the dollar. I don't think there's really a discrepancy between, you know, the energy to move dollars and the energy to move Bitcoin. I think the energy is actually less. The total energy is actually less. And we'll, we'll get to that some more in a second. Next, though, what about the high cost of Bitcoin's individual smaller transactions? I've said this many times. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. How expensive would it be if you wanted to buy a scone and a coffee with gold? It's prohibitively expensive. What are you going to use? A, a tenth of a gram? How's it going to be verified? Like, do you know how much how much you pay when you buy gold by the gram over the actual price? Gold's kind of an elitist asset in a way. You can't get a fair price on gold as an individual consumer. You're kind of in the neighborhood of having to buy. You know, a, a, a number of large 2.2 kilogram pure bars. You have to be in the neighborhood of like million dollar purchases to get a fair price on gold. The premium on gold is high, right? So the the small transactions are irrelevant here. And we're going to talk more about gold in a second, so I'll let that go. Um, however. It doesn't matter because you're going to end up with what I talked about earlier. You're going to end up with a situation where Bitcoin is your store of value and it effectively becomes digital gold. And I know it tweaks some people when you say that, but that's, those are people that don't understand what you're saying, so I'm done trying to explain it. Then you're going to have a medium of exchange. So there's a lot of ways to do this. One is right now you can do this. You can hold, buy, sell, trade Bitcoin inside the Cash App on Square. Okay. Done. Now, you want to buy a scone and you're foolish enough to spend your Bitcoin on it. You can do it. It's instant settlement. And what happens is in the back end, Square executes, you know, one settlement every hour and then it's done. And this, you know, it takes, you know, 30 minutes or whatever. Please don't think, please, I really want you to, before, you're not making the right comparison here when people are saying this shit. You go into the store and you buy $100 worth of shit, and you throw a Visa card up there, and slide, approved, done, you're out the door, you sign, you're gone. In your mind, you just had an instant settlement. You have not. It's about a three-day settlement time on the back end. 
when, when the Bitcoin transaction actually runs, it's full, complete settlement. The Bitcoin network, as slow as it is compared to some other cryptos, is infinitely faster than the dollar settlement through the banking system. It's massively faster. And so none of this really matters because you're back to it's a store of value. And it doesn't matter that some other currency can do it better because the other currency is not a store of value. The other currency is not a trillion-dollar asset headed to be a $10 trillion asset. The other currency is not the most secure network on the planet, infinity. We, we've, just, we've just turned that corner, and it's time that we accept it. I was a big fan of a lot of alts. I saw all the problems with Bitcoin as, as it matured, but I also watched it mature. And I've watched the institutions get involved, and I've watched where this is going. Um, next, what about quantum computing? I always hear the quantum computing is going to, within a year, they're going to crack the Bitcoin code. People that say this know absolutely nothing about what quantum computing actually is. Absolutely nothing. And the stuff they're talking about now, the quantum computing they're talking about now, that's, that's reasonably, you know, you were going to see it in the next two, three years, can't crack Bitcoin. If you say, well, but in 10 years it probably could. Well, maybe. But you're acting as if Bitcoin is this thing that's set in stone and it doesn't have anybody working on it to make it better at all. And that's just not the case. It's just not the case. So if we get to a point where quantum computing could theoretically overload and um, basically gather full consensus, because that's, that's the thing. Once you, once you take over the network by a certain percentage, that consensus then can make changes or create double spends or things like that. And that's how you could theoretically crack Bitcoin. Well, you're assuming that you can't have miners upgrade to quantum computing technology. You're assuming that you can't make the network itself quantum-proof. You're, 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 you're assuming a lot of things that just aren't true. So quantum computing is the last thing that I'm worried about when it comes to Bitcoin. The last thing, and to the point where I almost don't want to talk about it anymore because it's so irrelevant to my life. Now, the last thing is somebody said, please make a case to me that Bitcoin is better than gold, and this guy is a gold bug as a store of value. Okay, let's talk about costs. Let's talk about costs. For just for one example. Because we have to look at Bitcoin as what it's becoming. Not just an individual store of value, but an institutional store of value. So let's say a company has a billion dollars worth of gold. What does it cost to move that gold? That's tons. It's an incredible security risk. Probably $4 million. This is the number I heard tossed around in an interview. At least... Four million dollars to move a billion dollars worth of gold. Okay, how much does it cost to move a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin? A few hundred bucks or less. Depends. How, when, what, where. But there's no weight to it. If it did cost four billion, I mean, yeah, if it did cost four million to move a billion dollars worth of uh, gold, and you could move a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin for a hundred thousand, it would be infinitely cheaper. And it doesn't cost anywhere near that much. Now, I read some articles with some pretty good mental gymnastics trying to explain how it costs everybody in the Bitcoin network money when big transactions like that happen. I'm sorry, you're, you're really just trying too hard. These are people that are, you know, true believers in some alt here or there that's going to take over. And it's just, it just isn't. As far as a store of value, 
gold had a great run. It's not going away. But it really can't compete in the modern world and in the modern age with Bitcoin as a store of value. If the price of gold triples tomorrow, what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to have a lot of money because I have gold. No. What's going to happen in outside your bubble? Well, mining companies are going to start mining more gold faster. There is a finite amount of gold that we can make, but we have no idea what it is. None. And there's a hell of a lot more of it left than I think there is in some people's minds. Like gold, we can make more gold. We have, it, it, people talk about, you know, Bitcoin's having and the cycles of that. And I really think we've reached a point where we're, we're hitting a point where if you've been in Bitcoin a long time like I have, if you don't start seeing this new reality, your so-called experience becomes a detriment, not an advantage. Because we're used to, well, the halving comes and then it goes way, way up and then it retracts by 80%. And then the halving comes and it goes way, way up and then it retracts. That world is, is, is becoming less and less important. The amount of Bitcoin transactions a day exceeds the amount of mining by so much. It's, it's, we've, we've kind of hit that point where even though there's a significant amount of new Bitcoin produced every day, it's insignificant to the total. And that's just going to become more and more true over time. So it's not that halvings won't matter and getting down to 98% mind won't matter. It just don't matter. It doesn't matter as much as it did six years ago. You know, that's, that's more than half the time we've had this thing around now. Sometimes I think we start to lose an understanding of that. So I can't move gold as easily as I can move, move Bitcoin. And I can't take possession of my gold if it was in custody as easy as I can transactions are almost impossible to create with gold so if I do decide I want to buy something with my gold it's an incredibly complex and expensive process because no one's going to take the gold yes yes I know your neighbor would take a gold coin for his boat or whatever that's not what I'm talking about When you start getting into this world, you're getting into the world where you have to start looking at what do millionaires, billionaires, trillionaires do. And so if I wanted to buy something a little more realistic with Bitcoin and I need, I don't know, $2,000 worth, it's real easy. It's infinitely fractionable. Well, it's not infinite, but it's, it might as well be. We get to million-dollar Bitcoin, one Satoshi's a penny. That's how that works out. So even if we get a million dollar Bitcoin, I can still spend a penny. How do you spend a penny of gold without creating some sort of artificial gold? See, that's the thing. Gold is all the banks have always cheated on gold. They've always written loans against gold that they didn't have. They've always issued credit against gold they didn't actually have. The, the, the entire gold and silver marketplace is manipulated with paper. You can't do it with Bitcoin because there's a fundamental quantity that's known and it can't be cheated on. And it's auditable. It's fungible. It's auditable. Even if you don't know who has it, you know where it is. As in, you know what addresses it sits on. You know the last time it moved. How much of it moves. How much of it moves every day. 
We even have addresses that we know of major institutions because when somebody moves a billion dollars, it gets somebody's attention. And we can say, well, this is a, and we know like when this company says we just bought a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin goes to that address, we know whose Bitcoin it is. We know it's Elon Musk and Tesla when they say a billion and a half and you see a couple transactions totaling a billion and a half went to these two addresses. You don't know that with gold. If a, if a, if a, an institution that's going to start leveraging their asset that is Bitcoin starts saying we have 2,000 Bitcoin to do this with, you can verify it. What are you going to do, a physical audit of gold? Well, we don't have the gold. We have a paper for the gold. I mean, to me, gold was the best thing we had for thousands of years. It was the most difficult thing to cheat, and it was still cheating on like crazy. And now we have a better asset. Now, is that true of all cryptocurrencies? I don't know. Like I said, I, I think we're heading for an altcoin bloodbath. And it probably will drag the price of Bitcoin down for a while when it happens. There's a lot of instruments leveraged against each other, stakes, and God knows what it's going to look like when it happens. But we know that we're going to come out of this with some small portfolio of lesser assets that have different individual needs and niches they serve and one dominant player, which has already, in my opinion, been, been decided. There was a time when you didn't know if it was going to be Google or Yahoo. But go try to find Yahoo on the stock exchange right now. Go try to find it. You know, I want you to think about this too. Yahoo made a lot of money. Yahoo was profitable right up till it sold its, uh, its internet portion of itself off to Verizon. I believe it's Verizon who bought it. And, and, and divested of its other assets and became basically a private entity that way. It made money. But people bought Yahoo at $300 a share in 1999 and held on to it waiting to get their money back. And they never did. Think of all the other search engines. AltaVista, etc. Think of all the other companies that tried to play in that space. Even Microsoft has an incredible staying power as a corporation today. And it has a tremendous, it does a lot for shareholder value, whether you like them or not. I don't like them, but they do. But you, do you use Bing much? Right? You didn't want to own Microsoft if you wanted to be in the search industry. You wanted Google. If you want to be in social media, you wanted Twitter, you wanted Facebook, and that's it. I don't care how many competitors there are. If you're from an investment standpoint, I, I love alternative social media. I, I think that Facebook and Twitter will be here in 20 years. The ones I'm using right now instead, I don't know if they will, but I'm not investing in them. I'm using them. That's different. I think you have to start getting to a point where you start understanding this whole thing has shifted permanently. And it's, I'm just saying, I think it makes a lot of sense to educate yourself in this space and to get more involved with it. All right. With that, I want to wrap things up. I want to remind you that you can always support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And uh, today's item of the day that I have for you is about backup power. If you're worried about power, you should have backups. Uh, the Anchor Power Core backup batteries, um, The specifically the E7, which is a 26,800 milliamp hour portable charger, 
and the the PowerCore 20,000 milliamp hour charger. I love both of these. I own both of them. My favorite one is the 26,000 milliamp hour one because it's so huge. I mean, it, it'll charge my phone 10 times before it's dead. That's a lot of backup power. But the 20,000 milliamp hour one is no slouch either. It's the one that's on a better sale price today. The uh, the 20,000 milliamp hour one is on sale for 21% off at about 33 bucks. And the uh, the E7, the larger one, is on sale for like 9% off, and it's significantly more expensive. Today, if I wanted the maximum amount of uh, reserve power, I would buy two of the 20,000 ones. You have two. You have 40,000 versus 26,000, so that's more. It's a lot more. But they can go to two different places. Two is one, one is none. All of that. So anyway, that's the item of the day today. And remember, it doesn't matter what you buy. You can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Before I do, though, I want to let you know, I uh, just heard back from Kathy at Dr. Earth. They approved the verbiage that I put together for them. So I will be publishing the uh, announcement and the MSB update for the Dr. Earth discount before I get this show published. So now you're hearing this, it already happened. And because of that, the MSB sale was supposed to end today. I'm going to extend it one more day, and I'll make sure that's announced on social media and everything as well, because I think there's people that will be like, shit, I should have joined while it was on sale for 35 bucks." So I'm going to extend the MSB sale one day in, in uh, kind of honor and support of Dr. Earth coming on board with us as an MSB supporter, because that's huge, guys. This is, this is not a mom-and-pop company. This is a large, major national brand, uh, and uh, it's just a big win for us. And I think a lot of you guys, you know, you can put 10 bucks, 15 bucks a year back in your pocket, maybe more, uh, using Dr. Earth products and getting 10% off on them. And by the way, buying direct, this is how this whole relationship started. I started looking at their prices on Amazon going up and up and up, and they were just not being treated fairly by Amazon, so they still want to be there. But it's actually less expensive to buy from them on their own website than to buy from them on Amazon, plus 10 more percent off. So I'm extending that. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Um, I have never heard of the band we're featuring this week until John Adam brought them to me. It's called the Michael Stanley Band. And this guy's down at Cleveland. And he I, I didn't even know what to expect when I saw this week's music from John. Uh, and I, since I started listening to him, it's not the same. It's not even the same, a different man. But it's very, I, I would call the style very similar to, to like Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. Right, very very similar sound. It's definitely that type of music, and uh, man, this is some good stuff. And I think this guy was never quite as big as you know people like Bob Seger or what have you. The song we have today is called "Take the Time," and it's from 1982. But I want to tell you, this song could have been written today to talk about the way things are in our society right now, especially the fear-based society that we live in. Let me just read you the first stanza, and you can listen to the rest of the show for the rest of the song for yourself. These are strange days we live in. The nights get even worse. The poets died at midnight in a New York City hearse, and the news must make you crazy. It has for so long, and the streets are full of fear tonight, and coming on strong. Man, like I said, could have been writ today. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this week. Discovering a new artist is always a cool thing, especially when they rock like this guy does. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. These are strange days we live in. The nights get even worse. The poets died at midnight 
Instead, a hard rain's gonna fall. 